Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest once again today served as the 19th White House Press Secretary from 1998 to 2000 under President Clinton. Since then, he's made a career advising politicians, presidents, heads of state, and business leaders. Most recently, he served as the Executive Vice President of Communications and the Chief PR Officer at the National Football League. Last week, we had him on to talk about the news of the day, how the Mueller investigation operates differently than the Starr investigation operated, and how the White House, in crisis, battles with a hostile Congress and communicates with the press and the American people. The reaction to that episode was so positive that our listeners asked to hear more. So, we invited him back again this week. Joe Lockhart, welcome back to Words Matter. Glad to be here. So we want to learn a little bit about you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up, Joe? I was born uh, in Queens, Little Neck. My parents uh, moved uh, to the northwest suburbs, uh, Rockland County, a little uh, town called Suffern, New York. Grew up there. Uh, went off to college in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown and ended up staying about 30 years. Go Hoyas. I yep. went to Georgetown Law School. Why did you get into politics? I came from a media family. My uh, my mother was one of uh, the first women working in television in the fifties, mm. um, and my dad got. She then was working at NBC, and my dad got a job there, and he stayed uh, for about thirty five years. He covered uh, special events, you know, sort of uh, space launches from Florida, but conventions were the big thing. Uh, so. We used to – our vacations every uh, four years were in wherever the conventions were. So wow. we, we spent a summer in Miami Beach in 1972. 1976 was Kansas City and New York. 1980 was Detroit. It, so I grew up around it. Um, so I was always interested in politics. How I specifically got really my first job was um, I was nearing – I was a junior in college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did what I generally do when I'm confused. I quit. <laughs> uh, and went off and got a job. And um, my dad didn't talk to me for a while. And uh, he finally came down to Washington uh, and said, you know, what are you doing? And I explained. And we, we had a good conversation. He, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, that's the problem. I don't know. So he said, do you want to be a journalist? And, you know, I'm 19 years old, so I'm never going to tell my dad I want to be a journalist, even though that's what I wanted. <laughs> so I said, no, I don't want to do what you do. <laughs> and he said, well, what about politics? And uh, all I knew about politics is you ran for office. So I said, I can't be in politics because, you know, you got to be too nice to people and that's just not my nature. <laughs> and he then said, well, you know, there are people in politics who get to tell people like me what to do. And I said, hold on. There you go. I want to hear something about that. <laughs> and he explained, you know, how the White House press office works. And he had a friend who worked uh, – who ran the White House press advance office and he said, here's his number, call him. And one thing led to another, and I volunteered for seven months on the Carter re-election campaign. It ended up uh, being brought on staff, and that started it. And how did you decide at that point which party to join or to help? Oh, I, I, I grew up in a Democratic household. It was an interesting dynamic because my dad was a journalist, so he he never – like I remember I got in trouble one day because I put a – McGovern sticker on our uh, 
uh, mailbox and he went out and pulled it off and said, you can't do that. I'm a journalist. We can't, you know, we don't get to take sides. But there was no doubt, you know, my mother was a diehard Democrat and she was way more influential in sort of my politics and, you know, what I thought uh, about things because my dad was always, you know, right down the middle. With your dad being right down the middle and, and his career at NBC, how did that affect your worldview going forward in politics? Well, I I think it just exposed me to the whole process. I mean, I I, I have distinct memories of uh, one one time he brought me up to New Hampshire in 1976 in the winter because he was going up to do the primary, and I remember sitting and they gave me a job of like getting coffee and and things like that. And some guy walked by and he had one security person and I turned to the person next to me and said, who is that? And they said, oh, he's the governor of Georgia. He's – don't worry about him. He's not going to win. And I thought, OK, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about him. Um, when I was 13, um, my dad was in – sent to Washington for the entire summer to cover the Watergate hearings and to help coordinate the coverage. And he came to me one day and said, hey, would you like to go and watch the hearing? And I was like, Sure. And he got me in three days in a row and I heard uh, John Ehrlichman's entire three-day testimony from beginning to end just sort of standing in the back of the room. And so I, it just it, – you know, it's like uh, maybe some kids with sports or with music. In my family, it was politics and media. In 1988, you worked on Michael Dukakis's presidential campaign. Tell us about The Tank. <laughs> the Tank. It, the Tank is an interesting story because – the day before uh, – the tank was in Michigan. The day before, we were in St. Louis and I think it was the McDonnell Douglas you know, aircraft factory. And we went to the factory floor and some of the workers booed him. Uh, so we were very hyper aware of the criticism and the news coverage that day. So we took one of our guys who was traveled with us but was kind of the super advanced guy and he was sent to Michigan. Like go and make sure that you know Michigan works and there's no problem. And I remember talking to one of the advanced people the night before and they laid it out for me. They described what was going to happen and it sounded OK. And I, all I remember saying to him was make sure he doesn't put the helmet on. That will look stupid. <laughs> and he agreed. I mean it wasn't like I had the original thought. And the backstory of that is – he was told repeatedly, don't put the helmet on. And he put the helmet on for this reason. Michael Dukakis didn't understand that it was a photo op or he didn't care that it was a photo op. Mm. And the t tanks are very noisy. And he wanted to hear all the people in the tank telling him what they were doing. And the only way you could hear it is if you put the helmet on, which had, a, had you know, it amplified the voices. So if he had just done it like most politicians without the helmet and not listening to anyone, it would have worked. But he insisted that, you know, I'm in this tank. I want to know why, how it works, why it works. And the second bit of it is I actually stood with the press during that and I had one of the uh, producers turn to me and say, this is the best photo op you guys have done the entire campaign. <laughs> it was not ridiculed that day. It was ridiculed about two or three weeks later when Roger Ailes made an ad of it. Mm. And that's that, – you know, that's when um, it became such a liability. But it's – you know, it's – anyone who does advance, you know, first reads about the tank and, you know, f swears that they'll never do that. And most of them end up doing an event like it at some point. But there you go. Learn by experience. 
Okay, so now there are so many things I want to ask you about your time uh, in the Clinton White House and as press secretary. Like 23 million new jobs, longest peacetime <laughs> expansions, all that stuff. I'm ready. Go. You Whatever covered go. all yeah. my questions. Yeah. We're done now. No, so you started on Team Clinton during the president's 1996 reelect campaign. In 1994, Democrats had lost the 54 seats in the House and eight seats in the Senate, stunning in the Republican Revolution led by Georgia's own Newt Gingrich um, in his contract with America. Did that campaign look like an uphill struggle at the start? We were pretty confident from the beginning that the president would be reelected. After the 94 midterms, there was, a, you know, the president, there was a course correction. Uh, I think he realized that he needed to do some things differently. Uh, I wasn't there, but I was as a student of politics. You could tell um, that you know the the political operation was retooled, and the economy had turned to the point where it was strong in 1994, but people weren't feeling it as much as they were feeling it in '95 and '96. And then the Republicans nominated Bob Dole, who is without a doubt one of the finest public servants. Uh, who's ever served uh, in any capacity in America. I, I love Bob Dole. He was not a strong candidate. It, you, it, it was really much a – he played into what we were trying to do, which was to contrast uh, a party looking forward to the future and a party looking backwards uh, to the past. And uh, Dole played into that. So I think we were pretty confident. It, it didn't mean we didn't have tough days. But – there was never a point I, in which I thought or the campaign thought or the president thought, wow, we're going to lose this. Uh, you know, We're not going to get reelected. So in 1996, President Clinton ran against Bob Dole. He won with 379 electoral votes. President Clinton became the first Democrat since FDR to win two consecutive elections, and you went to work in the White House. What was it like that first day walking through those gates? It's an amazing experience, and the great part about it is, is it never changes. You know, it doesn't change after like you do most things. You know, you come in, something's bright and shiny, and the third time you do it, the third time you get into your new car, it's like okay, it's a car. Like it's not this life changing experience. The, coming into the White House every day and you know, just kind of walking across West Executive uh, didn't change uh, the whole time. Now, the once I got in the building, it. Uh, wasn't quite as special because it turned out that there wasn't an office for me. Um, and the person who um, was leaving uh, was was going up to work at the UN and there were some problems, some political problems. So she wasn't going to leave her office until her new job was ready. And I, you know, I, I said to Mike McCurry, where am I going to sit? And he said, oh, I've got it worked out. He, go, he takes me over to old EOB and he says, this is the desk of the guy who does the news clippings. And the good news is he works overnight. So as long as you don't come in until 8 o'clock in the morning, you can have his desk during the day. <laughs> so that's how ceremonially Welcome. majestic it was for me. And I ended up uh, for the first couple of months um, really just concentrating on uh, some of the um, uh, cabinet confirmations. We had some difficult ones. Basically sitting on the couch in the staff secretary's office for – 12 hours a day. And eventually I got an office and, you know, a chair and a desk and a computer and all that. Very fancy. Um, so you, you mentioned, Mike, you were deputy press secretary to Mike McCurry, who had in 1995 started the practice of allowing the White House press briefings to be taken live. Talk about what life was like before that and what life was like after. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Mike had come from the State Department uh, where the briefings were on camera. And I think he felt pretty strongly that it, you know, it was uh, 
uh, a public service that the cameras uh, should be there. And it's interesting. Uh, before Clinton was in office, they they had a system where the cameras would shoot like the first three or four minutes, but only could use it as um, sort of B roll. You know, Marlon Fitzwater would, you know, be on camera, but then when it got to what Marlon was saying, they'd have to put a graphic up with his words. It was a little ridiculous. And, you know, Mike wanted to change that, but Mike, being the clever guy that he was, didn't want to, like, make an announcement. So he just told whoever was in charge of the briefing room, every day he comes out, let it go a minute longer. Let it go a minute longer. Really? So one day it was five minutes, then six minutes, then seven minutes. And then, you know, it got to be like 20 minutes and he just said, well, why don't we just do the whole thing on it? And everybody was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, he, my, Mike re- talks about regretting it and it changing the nature. I disagree with him a little bit. I, I just think, you know, in this day and age, people get their news uh, a lot of ways and you can't, you know, you, you really can't restrict it. We've gotten into this uh, hyper-partisan cycle of our politics and, the, you know, the briefing is just a reflection of that. So I, mm-hmm. I don't, subscribe to the idea that the cameras made it that way. It contributed, but I I don't think you can turn back on technology. You mentioned Marlon Fitzwater. On an episode of The West Wing, he described the experience of working in the White House press office by saying that whenever he got too used to the perks and benefits of the job, he would be hit with the cold, hard reality that Helen Thomas was waiting outside his door to badger him on the topic of the day. What was the hardest part of the job for you? Well, Helen was not the hardest part of the job, but I learned a lot from Helen. And location means everything. Helen used to come in at 6.30 in the morning and would just sit outside my office. And I would always come in like I'd get her coffee and then go about my business. And it was only about six months later that she clued me in on why she was sitting there, which was she could tell by the traffic in and out of my office whether I was like had a big smile on my face or was running over to the chief of staff's office, that something was up. And then she'd know, okay, I got to start digging on this. So it was, you know, it was, it was very tactical. She also said to me, I remember after like wow. my second briefing, uh, I walked back and she's sitting in this chair in her throne. And <laughs> she, she said, how'd you like that briefing? And I said, oh, I think I did pretty good. And she goes, you're going to hate them. You're going to grow to hate them. And it's not true. I didn't. I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the briefing. There's nothing that was particularly, you know, difficult about it. It was all difficult. Um, and the stakes were really high. When I got the most anxious wasn't when I was talking. It was when the president was talking. Mm-hmm. Because I, I spent all day thinking about how we should frame things, what we can say, what we can't say. And I controlled what I said. And I actually had a fair amount of discipline and very rarely went off script. President went off script occasionally. Um, and so I always would, would – that's when I'd have a pit in you know, my stomach and it would tighten up. Um, and you know, with, with President Clinton, you know, we would lay out what we think – here's what we think you should say. And nine times out of ten, he would add something to it that was just magic. It was just like magic dust that made it 100 percent better. And one times out of ten, he'd say something that ruined the whole thing. <laughs> and those were the days. That, and then I knew – it was my job to go clean it up. Uh, and listen, I'll take 90% anytime. That's a good batting average. But, you know, we had our days. 
So in 1998, when you succeeded Mike McCurry and, and became the press secretary, at the same time, the Republican House voted to impeach President Clinton. Is it right that you started the same day the impeachment hearings began? Yeah. In fact, I think it was at the same time. I remember the briefings. We generally called at 1 o'clock. And for I don't know what the reason, they were unrelated. Henry Hyde gaveled in the impeachment hearings at 1 o'clock. Wow. Um, and it was fitting. I mean, I you know, I had spent the previous – at this point, nine months working almost exclusively on the star investigation. So I was, you know, I knew the subject matter and I knew what we were trying to do. And it was kind of fitting that we, you know, that, that Mike left as, as, you know, as this transitioned away from the independent council and to Congress, we transitioned from Mike to, to me taking over. I mean, we, did, we didn't plan it that way, but it's, it, it's just how it worked. So at that point in time, that made you the first and at least as of now, the only White House press secretary to serve during a presidential impeachment trial. I am more than willing to share the T-shirt with Sarah. Uh, you know, Sarah, come on down. You can be the second to uh, brief. The two-man that, club. That's that's if she does brief because that's become a rare occurrence. Right. But, I'm going to ask but, you But I digress. That. Right. So, I mean, at the time, you really – you were in this uncharted territory. How did you prepare for your job in – such an historic time. Well, I think what made it easier, not easy, but easier, was we had a strategy. Um, and the strategy was that uh, the president was not going to focus on himself. The president was going to focus on doing the people's business. Everybody else could pay attention to the scandal. And, and the strategy from the podium every day was to answer what you could on scandal questions, but to always bring it back to what are we doing to make people's lives better. So the fact that we had a strategy and the fact that the president was incredibly disciplined over this year. I mean, there were a couple of occasions where he went off script and we paid a price for it. But And he felt very strongly that he was a victim of this, but he didn't play the victim card in public. Um, so it was not as hard as it looked. Is there anything that you would change or do differently from your time at the White House? No, I mean, you know, the 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 really frustrating part uh, of that time period was, you know, we had an election in November. Uh, you know, no uh, president in their second term, midterms, had picked up seats in 150 years. It's just you're you're heading, you're sliding towards lame duckness, and it's the last chance for the public to stick it to the president by putting more members of Congress from the party opposite. We picked up seats. We picked up five seats. It was a clear signal to the Republicans on the Hill, enough is enough. Censure the guy. Let's move on. And, the, you, know, it's, you know, Erskine Bowles famously went to see Newt Gingrich and, and they had a good relationship. And Erskine said to him, Newt, why are you doing this? And he said, because we can. And it was very frustrating to know that no matter what we did, no matter what case we made, we were heading towards impeachment and, you know, that was that was difficult and it was difficult, you know, to – I think it was very difficult for the president but also the people around him who's – you know, all of our identities were caught up in, in President Clinton and, you know, it was, it was not an easy thing to, you know, wake up on that Saturday morning, go to work and get impeached. So since the Ford administration, there has been a tradition – that the outgoing White House press secretary leaves a note to their successor inside a flak jacket that hangs in the closet in their West Wing office. 
Tell us, if you can, about the note that you were given by Mike McCurry and the note that you left for Jake. I, I remember distinctly the note I read, I left for Jake. I'm not sure I remember Mike's. He'll he'll remind me of it, uh, I'm sure. Um, but I do remember I, I, Jake uh, Seward, who um, succeeded me for the last uh, three or four months, extraordinarily bright guy uh, and very good, well loved by the press. There, I had no problems. But Jake is a little bit like me, which he can be a smart ass. Um, <laughs> and I just wrote him a note that basically said, you will be judged on that moment between what you want to say and what you should say. And I said, take a deep breath and say what you should say. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we've laughed about that a few times. <laughs> That's good advice for press secretaries and podcasters yeah. alike. Yes. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you mentioned her. I want to talk about her a little bit. She's the 29th White House press secretary. Um, how has the job changed between 19 and 29? Well, I think, you know, the 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 Internet and technology and the, you know, the news cycle has, you know, run amok. But in the, you know, it didn't change radically between Obama's last day and Trump's first day. What changed radically was the commitment from the top to go out and tell the truth every day. You do your best. I, you know, I went out. I went. I did two hundred and something briefings, and I will sit and go through the transcripts of every single one of them and ask anyone to prove a place where I didn't tell the truth. Um, there were days that I did my best to not reveal information, but I never lied. I don't think I ever even came close to it. President Trump sent Sean Spicer out on the very first day to tell a demonstrable lie. And, I, you know, I had known Sean from around time. You could tell by the look on his face he didn't want to do it and was uncomfortable. Uh, but he did it and he kept doing it. And, you know, I think that it's just my opinion. The difference between Sean and Sarah is Sarah seems to relish it as opposed to how uncomfortable I think Sean looked when he was doing it. And I don't know. At, at the end of the day, I don't know whether it's because she actually believes uh, the lies or she just believes that the ends justify the means and uh, thinks it's OK. But either way, it's a it's it's a gross disservice to the public. Uh, and for someone who stood there and made the hard choices of telling the truth and trying to advocate for my president – you know, it makes me angry. It makes me angry to watch um, uh, um, on a, you know, on a regular basis, whether it's in the briefing room or on the driveway or on Fox and Friends, see someone who's taken the truth and made it, you know, a flexible uh, commodity. You talk about never saying anything from, from your time at the podium that, that you knew to be untrue. Did anyone ever ask you or tell you to repeat something to the press that you knew to be untrue? I don't think so. I think it, it's it's more subtle than someone, you know, saying go out and lie. Um, right. And one of the things about being the press secretary is you have to have the same instincts as a reporter. Uh, on any given issue, people have both, co you know, a conscious agenda and an unconscious agenda. And I found that, you know, on a lot of issues, if I just went and asked the same question to multiple people, I could very quickly find out that, oh, there's some nuance here. And, you know, on these issues, I'd either then have to go to the president uh, or to the chief of staff and say, hey, the Economic Council says this, but the NSC says that. If you want to leave it up to me to decipher, I will. But, you know, let's let's get together on what it is. 
So it's not that people want you to lie. They they want you to advocate for their position. And you have to be relatively sophisticated to um, piece together what is you know what is true and real, and where the president is. You you'd be surprised how often I'd be given a piece of paper. And I'd be talking to the president and saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to – the briefing today, I'm going to say this, this and this. And he'd say, no, you're not because I don't believe that. I haven't made that decision or I don't think that's right. And that was part of the process. In this day and age where, you know, people get their news on Twitter and there's superficial consumption of the news, reading the first couple of paragraphs of something and then making an argument about it. Um, and I think it's fair to say that people – on both sides of the political line um, do that. How do you think that we can stay vigilant about the truth as journalists and as consumers of untruths? Well, I mean, the, the problem with the, the the new media platforms is people, you know, the, if you, you talk to the people at Twitter, they and they, they know this from their analytics, people on the right side of the political spectrum are only reading and being exposed to the right side and people on the left side are only being exposed. And the big difference between when I started doing this a long time ago and now is we used to have a common set of facts. We all agreed on what the facts were and then we'd argue like hell uh, over like, you know, what's the right way to deal with those facts. Now everybody's got their own and you do, all you have to do is turn the TV on at night. It's like it's one of the if, – if you're like bored at 9 o'clock, turn on TV and watch – Fox News for five minutes where, for God's sakes, you think Hillary's still president or is president, not still, you know, go over to MSNBC and you hear a totally different story and CNN is somewhere in the middle. Um, and But if you're, if you're only watching one of them, you have no idea what the other people are watching. And that's why we have the polarized, you know, the political climate we have. That's funny. Um, that reminds me of uh, some advice that many young lawyers receive uh, when they're going through law school, that when you are in the courtroom, if the law is on your side, argue the law. If the facts are on your side, argue the facts. And if neither are on your side, just bang your hand on the table until you're done. Yeah. And the, the political version is the same. And the last is if you know if you don't have the law or the facts, Argue the politics, right? And we spend a lot of time arguing the politics. And listen, we we've, you know, it's it's worth taking a step back, and just and just underlining how abnormal and how crazy the environment we're in. This is a president who, according to the Washington Post, has now told almost ten thousand lies in two years. Ten thousand times he opened his mouth and didn't tell the truth. This is a president that I think if you picked. Any day randomly during the campaign and look through the transcripts, you would find he did or said something that day that 10 years ago would have forced any other candidate out of the race. So every single norm we have in politics has been blown up and everybody's trying to figure out are the boundaries going to reform? What are they? You've got a situation where you know, I when I watched what unfolded in the state of Virginia probably a month ago – I thought these guys can't survive the weekend. I mean, they've they've all got to go. Well, they're all still sitting there, and none of this is good. We have a a a, a media environment that has moved from where you had elite gatekeepers and referees, 
you know, and there was it was never a great system because these were generally white men who went to Ivy League schools and lived on the coasts. Right. And we've democratized it, but what we forgot was to bring a new rule book to the table. And right now, no, you know, you have, uh, you know, I, I was reading uh, recently that something like sixty percent of respondents think that the reporters get paid by their sources. It's the most absurd idea I've ever heard. But if sixty percent of the people say it, some of these people like they're not stupid, right? But they believe, you know, they keep getting fed misinformation and they end up believing it. So going back to norms and, and norm busting, you recently wrote a piece uh, for CNN talking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, getting rid of the daily briefings. Yeah. Um, how often did you hold briefings? I held a briefing every day, Monday through Friday, unless the president was traveling or holding a press conference. And how long could you go without holding one before the press started to complain? Well, I mean, they complain when I did them, but that's a whole different <laughs> story. Uh no, you know, ne- I never. I don't know that I ever went more than two days um, without doing it. And let me let me tell you, I, I don't think it's because I I thought the press deserved it. The briefings were good for us. It gave us an opportunity to make our case. And sure, there were a lot of tough questions. And you know, I like to think that guys, you know, that Dee Dee Myers was good at it, and George Stephanopoulos was good at it, Mike McCurry and Jake. We, I think, we were good in our period of. Being able to make sure that we had – we aggressively tried to set the agenda. And like some days we lost, some days we won, but we were in the game every day. I look at this White House and there there are weeks that they're not in the game. You that, think they've given up the offensive tactics? Yes, that everybody else is setting the agenda and they're reacting. The contrasting approach to these scandals is is stunning to me. You know, Bill Clinton believed – he was a victim of Ken Starr's overreaching. He thought it was – in private, he thought it was a witch hunt. And I think there's some merit to um, uh, to that argument. But you only saw him complaining publicly once or twice. The president tweets three or four times a day. The president has made the Russia witch hunt um, investigation all about him. He's made himself the victim of this investigation. And that's a fundamental mistake. In politics, I think, uh, at least with the old rules, maybe, you know, the re- new rules with reality TV, it works. But most voters think it's about them and they think it's about what's going on in their lives, not what's going on with the president. And I, I think one of the reasons he's stuck with just, you know, between 38 to 43 percent in that range is that all the people in the middle are like, get over yourself. I mean, you know, we don't care. You know, they'll either find you did something, you didn't do anything, but do your job. And, you know, our strategy with President Clinton was we were going to let him do his job. Um, And the, the, the difference is the difference. It's night and day. And listen, we we started the investigation probably around 51, 52 percent job approval. We finished the, the whole thing at the Senate acquittal in the high 60s. So the public responded to the fact that despite what was going on in Washington, they had a president who was focused on them. It's interesting you you mentioned Ken Starr and, and all in um, the numbers at the beginning at the end. How long was that time period? I mean, we, we all know that Bob Fisk actually started the investigation uh, looking at Whitewater and then it transitioned to Ken Starr. So 
over how how long in President Clinton's presidency was he under investigation? Well, he's under investigation basically from day one. Um, you know, Whitewater turned into this ever expanding uh, travel gate, Vince Foster. Filegate, which was some security, uh, there was a guy who was work, acting improperly in our security office. I mean, um, but it was all kind of, you know, it never reached like into the national consciousness. The president was reelected. The Monica Lewinsky story did, and that actually gripped the country uh, and was very different. And that went on for thirteen months. You know, from beginning to end, from when the story broke to when the Senate uh, acquitted the president. All right, so. As much as I want to keep asking you about your time in the Clinton White House, uh, you have done a lot since that I also want to talk to you about. You are a man of many hats. You have taken on uh, several different roles. What was your first role right after the White House? After the White House, I started a company with a couple of friends of mine, um, a consulting company, which is still ongoing, which amazes me because at the beginning, we we knew we were going to do great. We just didn't know we were going to get any clients. Um, uh, we had lots of great advice. We just didn't, were reasonably certain no one would pay us for it. One of the nice parts about having your own business is you're allowed to go out and do other things. So I spent about three months uh, working for John Kerry uh, at the end of, of that campaign. Uh, I went off and uh, in 2012 did Facebook for about a year and a half and then came back again and then finally off to the NFL when, when, I, when I finally flew the coop for, for real. So I want to talk about Facebook a little bit. They've obviously um, been in the news related to the 2016 election. Mark Zuckerberg recently testified before a Senate committee about Facebook's role in the 2016 election. And the senators asked him questions like, how do you make money? Yeah. And is it really an actual book? You know, the senators clearly, you know, relying on their staffers can get a grip on what Facebook is. But how can Washington regulate Facebook when they don't even really know what it is? There are regulators in in Washington, you know, at the FTC that know more than, you know, the senators demonstrated that day. The problem with with the technology is it changes so rapidly and and the innovation is so quick that the regulators never catch up. Uh, so I think ultimately there's going to have to be some meeting of the minds. I think it's very difficult to legislate this. I think the companies and and the government have to get together and put together some sort of guidelines that's a mix of uh, regulations and self-regulation. My, my view on Facebook, and I know more about Facebook than some of the other platforms, is they genuinely believe, and I share the belief, that connecting people is – a very positive endeavor and enormous amounts of um, good things come from it. Uh, But what we saw in 2016 is there's a lot of bad things uh, uh, that happen. And, you know, there's there's no doubt that these very powerful tools can be used um, by people who are trying to do bad. It's not terribly different than at, you know, previous times when, you know, people were using – terrorists were using cell phones. You know, I don't think you know, no one said we ought to shut down the cell phone industry, uh, but we do have to make. And I think the big thing say, Facebook's got to do is they they and other companies have been very afraid about really being very open about what their business model is. It doesn't surprise me that senators don't know. And the business model is simple, which is you give us information about yourself and we're going to provide a service to you that is well worth giving us 
this this information, and we will protect this information. And this is how we will protect it. So I want to also talk about your time at the NFL. You were executive vice president of communications at the NFL from 2016 to 2018. Now, there was a lot of news coming out of the NFL over those two years from domestic violence to CTE to Colin Kaepernick. Let's start with Kaepernick. Sure. What do you think about him? And what do you think about how the NFL handled that entire situation? From my position as, you know, running PR from the league, it created an enormous headache. But I thought it was important to do. You know, I, we just, you know, it's you, you don't get to choose how these national conversations start, but they have to start. And they've got to start somewhere. And, you, and often it's somebody lights a match someplace and you would never believe that it would, you know, the... The ironic thing about Kaepernick is he had been apparently sitting for a couple games in a row during the preseason, and it was an NFL network, an employee of the NFL, who reported on it. He just you know, went to him afterwards and said, why were you sitting? And he told him, and he put it on the air, and the next thing you know, we've got – so I think you know, my position internally at the league was, yes, this is a problem. There are a lot of our fans who don't like this is happening, but uh, these are our players. It's an important cause, and we ought to get behind them. And that was a controversial position uh, internally. Going into the season where Trump gave his speech that blew the whole thing up, we had already started a dialogue with players about investing uh, in social justice programs because their point was no one will pay attention to this unless we do it on the field. And, you know, we would say to them, do it some other time. Don't do it on the field. And they'd say, if we do it some other time, no one will pay attention. And they were right. And, you know, we started this conversation where we were going to invest some money to raise the profile of these issues and to do joint lobbying and that sort of thing. And we we had gone a long way towards reaching an agreement. And then Trump, you know, blows the whole thing up. And we went from having three or four players kneeling to having that first weekend over 300 players uh, kneeling. Um, and Trump did it not because he believed, you know, uh, in in the anthem as anything. He did it because he's a divider. He wins by dividing people and hopes that he gets enough. And anything he can do to drive a wedge in the country, he's going to do. And, and that's what he did. So – we woke up on a Saturday morning and all of a sudden we went from the back sports page to the front page uh, with this issue. And, you know, a lot of stuff happened. So there was a recent New York Times opinion piece that said that football in America reflects this country's racial caste system, mostly black players sacrificing their bodies for the entertainment of a mostly white audience. You think that's right? The morning... After Trump gave the speech, I waited till 7.30 in the morning to call the commissioner, forgetting that he was in Colorado and where it was 5.30. And I said, you know, we've, we've got a big choice here. We've got to get, you know, we've got to choose here. And my position was, you know, we, were, we are going to lose some of our fan base here, but that's, and that's bad, but it's worse if we lose our workforce. And if they walk off the field, then we lose 100% of our fans. And I thought it was the right thing. To, to stand with the players. And over that day, you know, we basically split up the owners uh, among some of the league staff and talked through all of this with every owner. And 
made the case that we've got to stand together. Unfortunately, over time, the the political divisions within the ownership uh, flared, and we were not so united, and that played into Trump's hands. To the question, I, you know, I look at it more as these are elite athletes; they're seventy percent African American, and they're the most important issue for these athletes were social justice, and the you know whether it was bail reform or innocent young black men being shot by police, all of these things. And you know what? If I'm if I'm running IBM and seventy percent of my employees think that immigration is the most important issue, then I'm going to damn well focus on immigration. And it, it seemed pretty simple to me that if the players thought it was important, they were an important part of the league. And sometimes the owners forget that it's about the players. It, it fell apart a little bit when, you know, after a tough loss, Jerry Jones went out and said, "None of my cowboys are going to kneel. If they kneel, they're gone." which then opened the division. I wish he hadn't done that. He, he wishes I never went to work for the league, so we're, we're even. And I actually have a lot of respect for Jerry. He, he, is, he is a great salesman and has been a, a huge driver in growing professional football, which grows football. On the other hand, when it came to this issue, I couldn't disagree with him more. Yeah, I, uh, I just couldn't. And you know, when you're going up against the owner of the uh, most valuable franchise, of any franchise probably in the world, absent maybe some of the, the soccer teams you know, um, in Europe, you're going to lose. We ended up getting the right thing done, but there were a few of us that got you know, kind of uh, kicked to the side you know, once the dust had settled. What was the right thing done? We focused on the players. We supported the players. There's now two to $300 million in funding social justice programs. Nobody else is doing that. No company is doing that. No other league is doing that. And the players today feel like they've got more of a stake uh, in the game in the league than they did uh, before this. All right, Joe, there are um, at least another hour's worth of questions that I could ask you, but... uh, You're going to have to put more money in the meter. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming back. I have a feeling we'll be seeing more of you. At least we hope so. Thank you. It was fun. Words Matter will be back next week, and we hope you will be too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.